Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing Reformed Epistemology. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I would strongly recommend doing so before part two. I'll be summarizing what we've talked about so far, giving name to some of the ideas we've discussed, and covering some important new ground. And it'll just sound like a bunch of pointless jargon if you haven't already listened to part one. And even more so than part one, we'll have to put our philosophy hats on for today's subject. So Alvin Plantinga and other Reformed epistemologists argue that religious beliefs, including belief in the existence of God, should be considered basic, meaning they form the foundations for all other beliefs. Properly basic beliefs are unique in that they don't need to be justified by appealing to other beliefs. If we attempt to justify all our beliefs by appealing to other beliefs, the reasoning goes, we'll be left with an infinite regress or circular reasoning somewhere. There have to be some basic beliefs. So what are these basic beliefs? We can say a proposition is properly basic if it's self-evident, incorrigible, or evident to the senses. Simple logical and mathematical truths are considered self-evident. 2 equals 2, A equals A, either P or not P, 1 times 7 is 7, and incorrigible beliefs are those that are known by immediate experience, like knowledge that you're in pain. If you're seeing green leaves, It is a fact that you are seeing the color green. There is a green sense datum. You are being appeared to greenly. Technically, the pain example and green example are in different categories, the former being incorrigible and the latter being evident to the senses. I don't think this distinction makes any sense. Pain and a green sense datum both appear in your conscious experience. I don't think feeling happy and hearing a sound should be in separate categories. They both correspond to external events, and they both appear in consciousness. They both cannot be doubted, though their causes can be doubted. The question is, should this list be longer? The framework I've been describing is known as classical foundationalism, which states that a proposition is properly basic if and only if it's self-evident, evident to the senses, or incorrigible to the subject in question. Planning it doesn't like classical foundationalism. He thinks that list I mentioned is too short. Classical foundationalism is too restrictive as an epistemological system. It leaves us unable to justify many statements that we really think are true. You're being excessively skeptical, and you're being inconsistent with your skepticism, he says. Planninga goes on to argue that belief in God and his attributes should be included on the list of properly basic beliefs, thus relieving us of the cumbersome exercise of giving arguments for God's existence. And let's let Plantinga speak for himself on this. Quote, Were it not for the existence of sin in the world, human beings would believe in God to the same degree and with the same natural spontaneity that we believe in the existence of other persons, an external world, or the past. This is a natural human condition. It is because of our presently unnatural sinful condition that many of us find belief in God difficult or absurd. End quote. According to Planninga, belief in God may be naturally triggered, quote, in beholding the starry heavens or the splendid majesty of the mountains, 
or the intricate, articulate beauty of a tiny flower. End quote. So Planinga, along with all the other Christians whose superior mental faculties haven't been degraded by sin, look at a star or a mountain and immediately conclude that a god exists. Their divine experience that provides them with immediate, self-authenticating knowledge of God occurs via the stimulation of their senses divinitatis, as we discussed last episode. Planinga doesn't think this is quite the whole story. I neglected to mention last episode that he thinks there's another criterion to be considered. The circumstances under which we have these experiences. These divine experiences need to be occurring under certain circumstances to be considered properly basic. If our faculties are behaving normally, in the conditions they were intended to operate in, then we're justified. But as you may be wondering, what are these conditions? And who decides which conditions or circumstances are the right ones? Muslims? Raelians? Orthodox Jews? Planning admits that these conditions that are the right ones are hard to specify, but he maintains that they're necessary to claim a belief is properly basic. What he's trying to do is avoid some of the absurd conclusions his system could potentially be used to justify. He's attempting to make reformed foundationalism a little less permissive, so it doesn't allow just any old belief to be considered rational. The bottom line is that Planninga wants us to consider the circumstances of our experiences. To borrow one of his non-religious examples, imagine I saw before me a rose-colored wall. Planninga says that if I know I'm wearing rose-colored glasses, then the statement, I am seeing a rose-colored wall, is not properly basic. I completely disagree with him here, and our disagreement can help us understand where he goes wrong. Even if you are wearing rose-colored glasses, it is a fact that in your mental existence, there is a reddish sense datum. You are being appeared to redly. This is why I emphasize the fact that we must separate the fact of the experience and the cause, interpretation, explanation, etc. If you forgot you were wearing rose-colored glasses, that would be a perfect example of your experience not corresponding to external reality in the way you immediately think it does. You think there's a rose-colored wall before you because the wall is that color, when in reality, you're wearing tinted glasses. Either way, your experience, the immediate, incorrigible fact of your conscious experience, is identical. And the statement, I am seeing a rose-colored wall, is properly basic in either case. The statement doesn't entail any particular idea about how our experience corresponds to external reality. But then there's that extra step that Planninga doesn't want to admit he's making. That extra step that's really a giant leap that can easily be called into question. He's arguing that God can be properly basic because someone has an experience that they think means a God exists, like cancer going into remission, or having a meaningful dream, or a parking space opening up, or having a transcendent experience gazing at a waterfall, or hearing God's voice. I hate to just say, go listen to this other episode I already made, but the argument from personal experience episode should at least be considered supplementary to these reformed epistemology episodes. It's at least a prequel to these two. In fact, I even mentioned Alvin Planinga and reformed epistemology at the very beginning of that one. A disconcerting amount of reformed epistemology can be boiled down to the argument from personal experience. One of the worst arguments for God on offer. And my view here is that the way in which I know Christianity is true is first and foremost on the basis of the witness of the Holy Spirit in my heart. 
and that this gives me a self-authenticating means of knowing that Christianity is true wholly apart from the evidence. And therefore, if in some historically contingent circumstances the evidence that I have available to me should turn against Christianity, I don't think that that controverts the witness of the Holy Spirit. The reasoning goes, one, my account of my personal experience is reliable or even infallible. Two, I had a personal experience that I interpret to mean God exists. Three, therefore God exists. If you strip away all the philosophical jargon that Plania and his defenders throw around, that's basically what they're saying. Well, I dispute the first premise, that your account or interpretation of your experience can just be taken at face value, especially when it entails, say, the flatness of the earth, or the existence of ghosts, or gods, or aliens, or some other strange external object, when simpler explanations are readily at hand and when we have reason to doubt the flatness of the earth or astrology, or God, or ghosts. We have to separate our experience from the external world. And even then, not all perceived external entities are equal. Belief in God is not rational just because someone who was sick recovered, or because you had a meaningful dream, or because a parking space opened up, or because you hear a voice in your head that you think is God. Reformed epistemology effectively amounts to, don't worry about the lack of evidence for God. If you think I'm strawmanning, listen to a Christian believer, an apologist named Tyler McNabb on the Unbelievable podcast, in conversation with the philosopher Stephen Law, and listen to him describe the effect Reformed epistemology had on him. Yeah, there was a time where I was, <clears throat> sometime after my, my conversion, where I was plagued by sort of Cartesian doubt. I felt that I had to meet this sort of... Uh, uh, requirement that in order for my belief to be justified or rational, uh, it had, to, it had to, to be sort of an infallible belief, a belief that I couldn't be wrong about. Uh, this, <laughs> this, of course, is a, a pretty an intense burden to bear for any belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, upon reading Alvin Plantinga's Warranted Christian Belief, uh, immediately I realized, wait a minute, I can, I can trust my basic intuitions, I, I, I can trust what appears to me to be the case, and and this was very liberating and mm. really sort of got me uh, going and uh, uh, reading and defending Plantinga's uh, uh, arguments. Do you think that this whole thing is a bit of a sneaky way to avoid having to uh, give give proper evidence for for supernatural beliefs? Ooh, sneaky is a strong term. Um, it's just one of the... Is it, what we've got here is a strategy which has been used throughout history by people that believe in spooky stuff to say, well, you can't prove there is no so-and-so, no ghosts, no fairies, or whatever it might happen to be, plus I just know that there are, and it doesn't matter what you say or what evidence you give, give me, I'm just going to dig in and keep on believing, and if it really seems to me that there are there and that they are communicating with me, well, then I'm entirely entitled to believe that. People have always done that, and what we're looking at here is, is, is some, some sort of um, philosophical gloss added to that basic strategy but it's the same old strategy it's the same and it seems to me and it seems to me it's just it's 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 not a rational strategy what's what reason have we to believe that this explanation is true and the answer is none other than it really really seems that way to tyler um it really really seems that way to the tradition yeah yeah of course it does of course it does
Upon first hearing about Reformed epistemology, some compare it to Kierkegaard's leap of faith. But Plantinga's foundationalism isn't exactly faith-based. He wants to know if it can be rational to believe in God without argument. The without argument is what inspires the comparisons to Kierkegaard, but the attitude towards rationality distinguishes them. Plantinga still wants to be rational. He wants to know if it can be rational to believe in God, whereas Kierkegaard explicitly rejected any appeal to rationality when it came to religious belief. You had to take the leap of faith to assert your freedom over rationality. Plantinga, on the other hand, isn't aiming to subvert rationality in the way Kierkegaard was. Though you wouldn't be crazy to think the differences were more nominal than substantive. Plantinga does want to relieve Christians of the need to provide any evidence for their religious beliefs. This is the, let's call it counterintuitive, conclusion of his arguments against classical foundationalism, which, to be fair, one could respect and even agree with without coming to Plantinga's conclusions about God belief being properly basic. Part of Plantinga's critique of classical foundationalism is that it's too restrictive and excessively skeptical. He contends that a statement like, the world existed five minutes ago, can't be justified on classical foundationalism while it can be accepted on his reformed foundationalism. On planning a system, the statement, I remember having breakfast ten minutes ago, can be properly basic. But as the philosopher Michael Martin points out, even if planning a successfully refutes classical foundationalism, that doesn't dispense with foundationalism, and it obviously doesn't rule out any non-God-involving epistemological system. It's not as if only theists can rationally accept statements like, I remember having breakfast ten minutes ago. Take that question we asked at the beginning. Should this list of properly basic beliefs be longer? Classical foundationalists would say no, but it's not as if only reformed foundationalists get to say that list should be longer. The point is that criticizing classical foundationalism as inadequate doesn't dispense with all epistemological systems that don't involve a god. It doesn't even dispense with all versions of foundationalism. Plantinga's reformed epistemology begins with a critique of classical foundationalism, but even if he's correct, all we would have to do is modify foundationalism, add a couple categories to that list, and many philosophers have done work in that area. Even if we agree the bar needs to be lowered, we don't have to lower it as far as Plantinga wants us to. If we agree that list is too short, we don't have to make our foundationalism absurdly permissive. And if you take that statement we just mentioned, I can remember having breakfast ten minutes ago, I would argue that even classical foundationalists can allow that statement as properly basic. Incorrigible propositions are properly basic on classical foundationalism, and that statement is incorrigible. Remembering having breakfast doesn't prove that the universe existed ten minutes ago, but the statement doesn't entail any interpretation of the immediate conscious experience of having that memory, as was the case with the rose-colored wall. And foundationalists aren't stuck there. They're allowed to make inferences based on properly basic beliefs. I don't think classical foundationalism means one can only hold beliefs that are properly basic. They're allowed to make inferences based on properly basic beliefs. We can infer from a set of propositions that are self-evident, evident to the senses, or incorrigible. You're allowed to build off of basic beliefs. They just have very strict criteria for what counts as a properly basic belief, unlike Plantinga. It's not as if classical foundationalists are restricted to only believing things that are properly basic. Moreover, even if all you have are self-evident and incorrigible truths, you can't help but notice what tends to lead to certain outcomes. 
I would say induction is self-evident. I'm not saying there's no problem of induction. It can be doubted, but mostly as an exercise. Nobody's going around touching hot stoves to see if they're really hot every time. And if we're only starting with the basic beliefs classical foundationalism allows, I don't see why we couldn't add pragmatic or Bayesian features to that epistemology. Like I said, you can't help but notice what tends to lead to certain outcomes. If I see that the traffic light is red, I believe based on induction that it's not safe to go. All I'm doing here is trying to accurately predict future sense data. So am I certain that induction works? Well, no. But for one, I'm not sure how God gets you out of that problem. In fact, young earth creationists invoke God to violate induction, to explain away the old appearance of the universe. And you don't need certainty to take advantage of induction. Why does induction have to be certain anyway? It works. I'm not certain of induction, but all I'm doing, and all I can do, is predict future experience, predict future empirical data. As I mentioned, I don't see why I'm not allowed to add Bayesian or pragmatic elements to classical foundationalism. Those are simply methods for organizing these basic beliefs. I'm taking in all this sense data, and I need to find a profitable way to navigate it. Accurately predicting future sense data doesn't require the certainty that Planninga seems to think he needs. Remember, Planninga was criticizing classical foundationalism as too skeptical. The bar is just set too high. And this is evident when we consider all the unobjectionable sounding things that we can't claim to know with the certainty that Planninga wants. I think we should talk for a moment about certainty. Certainty about our beliefs, moral and veridical. How certain can we reasonably be of the moral worth and the truth value of what we believe? I want to have an epistemological system that leads me to the truth, and I want to know when I've landed on the truth. I want certainty too, but it's been pointed out that you can't always get what you want. We can establish a higher or lower credence in ideas, we can determine different degrees of probability, something can reliably predict future experience, or it can be very unreliable in predicting future empirical data. Something can be very, very probable, or so improbable that it's not going to take up much of your mental life. But I don't think we can reasonably expect much more than that. I would like absolute certainty too, but veridical and moral uncertainty is part of the human condition. You can claim to have certainty, but you don't. You can feel that you're certain, but that's not a reflection of your actual knowledge. Striving to get closer to truth is a venerable way to spend your time, but you'll never reach absolute certainty or objectivity because you're a human being. Everyone, theists included, must find a way to live in the face of some ineradicable amount of uncertainty. Some believers of the presuppositionalist persuasion like to claim that they get to have certainty. After all, God is infallible, omniscient, and they're in contact with him. They're getting their information from an infallible being, so they enjoy a level of certainty that one who does not believe in an omniscient being just can't enjoy. Let's just agree for the sake of argument that God is infallible by definition. Everything he believes is objectively true. There is a being that exists, and every belief this being holds is true. You, on the other hand, are not infallible, and you're the one who's determining if you're talking to God in the first place. You could be wrong about whether or not God is the actual source of the voice in your head, or the author-slash-inspirer of the book you're reading, or the source of the experience you're having. God might be infallible, but you are not. 
Muslims, Jews, Hindus, and other kinds of Christians can make the same exact appeal. You, not God, are the one who's sifting through these religions and figuring out which book is the Word of God. Let's assume that there is a being who is omniscient, infallible, and honest. How on earth do we communicate with this being? Sure, he has access to facts about reality, but how do we communicate with him? No matter which religion you're a part of, the overwhelming majority of other people, even the ones who believe that they're in contact with an infallible God, are completely wrong about that. So how do you know you're not in the majority? How do we know that we're not mistaken about being in personal contact with the creator of the universe? According to the Reformed Foundationalist, there are two big issues with classical foundationalism. We've been discussing the first one, namely that classical foundationalism keeps us from accepting a large number of beliefs that we usually accept as rational. Second, classical foundationalism is quote-unquote self-referentially incoherent. I mentioned earlier that Planning of Things were being inconsistent with our skepticism. Classical foundationalism holds that a proposition is properly basic if and only if it is self-evident, evident to the senses, or incorrigible. For a shorthand, we'll call that idea one. So one is the idea that a proposition is properly basic if and only if it is self-evident, evident to the senses, or incorrigible. That's the claim that classical foundationalists make. Planninga argues that classical foundationalists are unable to justify one on their own terms. The proposition one is not self-evident or evident to the senses nor is it incorrigible. So Plantinga says that a classical foundationalist who accepts one is being self-referentially inconsistent. They're accepting a statement as basic that doesn't meet their own criteria. There are a few responses to this charge of self-referential inconsistency. Even if Plantinga is correct in his critique of classical foundationalism, he hasn't refuted all of foundationalism. And it's not as if his reformed foundationalism is the only alternative. There's also no reason we can't take one to be self-evident, and therefore basic. As James Tomberlin has pointed out, different things are self-evident to different people. For example, only very simple mathematical truths are self-evident to me, while far more complex mathematical truths are self-evident to some of you listening. A classical foundationalist could argue that one is self-evident, and if planning a thought about it, the truth of one would become self-evident to him. And one the proposition that the only properly basic beliefs are self-evident, incorrigible, or evident to the senses, is not exactly a crazy candidate for being self-evident. I think Planning's critique is a bit confused. He's actually saying, is the belief in self-evident beliefs itself self-evident? And I think one could reasonably answer, yes, the belief that we should believe self-evident beliefs is self-evident. I think this criticism is a bit of a reach. I also think his criticism fails to address what one is actually trying to convey. And let me explain what I mean by that. When you feel a pain in your left knee, that is incorrigible. When it comes to pain, there is no distinction between knowledge and having the experience, because the having of the experience is the knowledge. To quote the philosopher Galen Strawson, when it comes to conscious experience, there's a rock-bottom sense in which we're directly and fully acquainted with it, just in having it. For the having is the knowing. End quote. 
The proposition one is simply trying to convey this fact. And as I mentioned, there's no reason we can't take one to be self-evident, and therefore properly basic. How do those with a census divinitatis compare to those who believe that they were abducted by aliens? What about clairvoyants, who apparently have a census ghostatus? Planning as epistemology is so permissive that no external criticism could be made of alien abductees, clairvoyants, or voodoo practitioners. He attempts to argue that his radical lowering of the epistemic bar somehow wouldn't allow just any belief to be considered properly basic. But if God can be properly basic because someone has an experience that they think definitely means God exists, like cancer going into remission, or having a meaningful dream, or a parking space opening up, or hearing God's voice, or having some experience during worship, then why can't belief in aliens or ghosts be properly basic as well? They are using the same exact reasoning that Planninga endorses. I had an experience that I interpret to mean that aliens abducted me. Therefore, my personal belief in aliens is properly basic and rational to hold. We have to discriminate between external objects that we think we perceive. Tables and chairs, aliens, gods, ghosts, and of course, trees, are all external objects that we perceive. But they are not all equally defensible. We need more information. Reformed epistemology is ludicrously permissive, which is why, if we accept it, belief in God is rational. Planninga's ingenious idea is basically to lower the bar for believing in things, so God can get over it. Consequently, a huge problem for Planninga's foundationalism is that virtually any belief could become a basic belief. Not a basic belief for him, or for me, but for somebody. To quote Martin, His proposal would seem to allow any belief at all to become basic, from the point of view of some community. Although reformed epistemologists would not have to accept voodoo beliefs as rational, voodoo followers would be able to claim that insofar as they are basic in the voodoo community, they are rational. And moreover, that reformed thought was irrational in this community. Indeed, planning his proposal would generate many different communities that could legitimately claim that their basic beliefs are rational. Devil worshippers, flat earthers, and believers in fairies among them. Just so long as belief in the devil, the flatness of the earth, and fairies was basic in their respective communities. End quote. These relativistic implications are a consequence of planning as lowering of the bar, which brings us back to this distinction between the project of reformed epistemology and apologetics as they're ordinarily practiced. Apologists usually try to provide reason and evidence that would persuade any rational being, but Planninga is trying to make it rational for him to believe in God. It's rational for anyone with a census divinitatis to accept what their sense data tell them and the ways their minds immediately interpret those data. It's not proven, it's just rational. And it's not even rational for all rational beings, it's just rational for him. A major problem for planning a system is that the rationality of any belief is absurdly easy to obtain, which is by design. Any belief could be considered properly basic by some community. If our faculties are behaving normally, planning acclaims, in the conditions they were intended to operate in, whatever those are, then we're justified in holding God belief. What are these conditions, and who decides which conditions or circumstances are the right ones? Planninga isn't sure what these criteria are that establish which conditions or circumstances are okay, 
But one thing he does know is that it's the community who decides them. Quote, The Christian will of course suppose that belief in God is entirely proper and rational. If he does not accept this belief on the basis of other propositions, he will conclude that it is basic for him, and quite properly so. Followers of Russell and Madeleine Murray O'Hare may disagree, but how is that relevant? Must my criteria, or those of the Christian community, conform to their examples? Surely not. The Christian community is responsible to its set of standards, not to theirs. End quote. So this makes it impossible for an outsider to critically evaluate any group's beliefs that they don't belong to. Accepting planning as proposal leads to total relativism. Any belief can be basic for some community. As long as the conditions conform to the standards set by the community, the belief is properly basic and doesn't need to be argued for. In fact, what's stopping atheists from getting in on the action? Why can't we claim that the belief that there is no God is basic for us? To quote Martin, Just as theistic belief may be triggered by viewing the starry heavens above and reading the Bible, so atheistic belief might be triggered by viewing the massacre of innocent children and reading Robert Ingersoll. Theists may disagree, but how is that relevant? To paraphrase Planinga, must atheist criteria conform to the Christian community's criteria? Surely not. The atheistic community is responsible to its set of standards, not to theirs. End quote. It's too easy to meet the standards Planinga has laid out, which is why they open the door for any belief that any community may hold. We should note that in order to make belief in God rational, we have to create a system that also allows belief in literally anything that any group has ever held. Not a great sign for God. This is to say nothing of all the internal Christian conflict, and the difficulty of defining a community to begin with. In addition to the vastly different beliefs of alien abductees, clairvoyants, and Muslims, there's all the disagreement within Christendom. Even if we agree to the ill-defined criteria Planninga gives us, people can have different reactions to the same stimulus. He said viewing the starry heavens above might be an appropriate condition. But what if the experience created a pantheistic belief in someone? What if their pantheistic community told them that this was also an appropriate condition? We keep returning to the fact that Planninga's foundationalism is thoroughly relativistic. All it takes is someone, somewhere, declaring that a belief is basic and then that belief is now beyond critical examination, and the belief doesn't have to be argued for. Anyone who's not a member of the community can't criticize the belief. And to quote Martin once more, any belief is beyond rational appraisal once it's declared basic. The logic of planning his position leads to a radical and absurd relativism. That's all I have for you today. I want to thank my Hall of Fame patrons, Jesta, Phil Stillwell, Richard Crossan, and Pre-Nifty. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you're a Christian apologist who's more relativistic than any of the new atheists, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also check out our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.